Well, this evening, if you would, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. And we'll read verses 1 through 20. Exodus 12. We'll be looking at the Passover. Five lessons for Christians. The Passover, five lessons for Christians. And if you would, please stand with me as we read God's holy word in Exodus. This is God's holy word. Let us hear it together. Exodus 12, verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Ye shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. And ye shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door post of the houses wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire, his head with his legs, and with the pertinence thereof. And ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth of it until the morning ye shall burn with fire. And thus shall ye eat it, with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Seven days shall ye eat unleavened bread. Even the first day shall ye put away leaven out of your houses. For whosoever eateth leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off. From Israel. And in the first day there shall be an holy convocation, and in the seventh day there shall be an holy convocation to you. No manner of work shall be done in them, save that which every man must eat, that only may be done of you. And ye shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for in this selfsame day have I brought your armies out of the land of Egypt, therefore shall ye observe this day in your generations by an ordinance forever. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at even, ye shall eat unleavened bread, even until the one and twentieth day of the month at even. 
Seven days shall there be no leaven found in your houses, for whosoever eateth that which is leavened, even that soul shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he be a stranger or born in the land. Ye shall eat nothing leavened, in all your habitations shall ye eat unleavened bread. You may be seated. Let us pray again. O our Father in heaven, bless us as we look at your word. I pray that you would help me to speak clearly and plainly and to exalt our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, as he is displayed here. For Christ's sake, amen. So the Passover, five lessons for Christians. God promised Abraham that his descendants would be a great nation and have a wonderful land. 400 years after the promise, which is where we are here in Exodus chapter 12, Abraham's descendants, the children of Israel, were slaves under the rule of cruel Pharaoh. There was nothing wonderful, nothing great, nothing blessed about their lives except the promise of God. But God, all of a sudden, at the time he had appointed, called Moses to go to Pharaoh and command him to set the Israelites free so they could serve God. Pharaoh refused. God sent plagues. Egypt was devastated by those plagues, and Pharaoh finally reached the point of relenting. And our story of the Passover here in Exodus 12 comes right here at this point where Pharaoh is on the verge of relenting. God has one final plague to bring upon Egypt, the destruction of the firstborn, all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Through this Passover event, God will deliver his nation Israel from Egypt and start them on their journey that will end in the land of Canaan, the promised land. As you move through the Bible, and we won't do this tonight, but as you move through the Bible, we see that the Passover is one of the greatest events in the Old Testament. Our text kind of hints at this in that God instructed Moses in verses 1 and 2 to make the first month of the year this month where Passover takes place for all their future generations. The nation of Israel was born that night, and so their calendar was affected because now their time would be structured around this event. He says, this month shall be unto the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. And another indication of the importance of this in our passage is that God commanded perpetual observance of the Passover to all future generations, like in verse 17. He says, And ye shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for in this selfsame day have I brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore shall ye observe this day in your generations by an ordinance forever. So this is something that the Israelites are to remember for the rest of time. It's a permanent remembrance. So why did God memorialize this night in the history of the nation of Israel? And the answer is simple. For Christians, for those of us who have the whole Bible in front of us, it is because God's redemption of Israel is a picture of Christ's redemption of his people through his life, death, and resurrection. The gospel records, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, highlight that for us by telling us that it was Passover night when our Lord Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper and then was betrayed by Judas, setting in motion that whole train of events that constitute our redemption, our salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ. So Israel's redemption night 
and our redemption night are historically connected. And also, as we move through other scriptures, we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that Paul says that Christ is our Passover. He's the fulfillment of what the Passover pointed to. And he says, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. In other words, Christ is being seen as the, sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb. And therefore, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, and we'll look at 1 Corinthians 5 later, so we won't go there now, but because Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us, we should be keeping a perpetual spiritual feast of unleavened bread, purging the Christian community of all malice and wickedness. Keeping the leaven out, the yeast out. So if God made the Passover important to Israel and also gives it to us as a representation of our own salvation, then we should read about the Passover. We should meditate on it, and we should draw lessons from it. Let's look for the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ shining through this Old Testament institution. So tonight I will explore five ways that in Exodus chapter 12 and a little bit around chapter 12, the Passover enriches our appreciation of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And the five things are one, unity. The many lambs represent one lamb for a unified nation. Two, consecration. Passover was the beginning of a holy, sanctified journey with God for the nation of Israel. Three, redemption. Passover's blood was the sign of deliverance. And that is such a sweet part of what we have here. And four, Purity, Passover lamb's blood was remembered with unleavened bread. Fifth, judgment, the lamb's blood explains Egypt's cry and Israel's peace. So let's dive in and look at these five things. There's so much more. Why only five? Because we only have a short time together. There are many very edifying and instructive things from this passage. And the fact that the, the whole Bible uses the Passover as a major picture of God's redemption of his people helps us to see that we can learn a lot about Christ from Passover. But we'll only look at these five things. So number one, from verses three through 10, unity. Passover's lambs represented one lamb for a unified nation. Let's read again verses three through 10. Speak unto all the congregation of Israel saying, in the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. There was a proportion between the number of lambs and the number of people who would be eating. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male of the first year, you shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. In other words, it could be a lamb or a kid. And you shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening, all together killing their lambs. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door post of the houses wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night. Roast with fire and unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire, his head with his legs 
and with the pertinence thereof. In other words, the whole lamb. And ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning. And that which remaineth of it until the morning, ye shall burn with fire. There had to be many lambs for a practical reason. There had to be enough food for everybody to go around. And there had to be enough blood for every doorpost. And everyone had to get some of the blood and some of the, the meat to, to, to eat the meat and to put the blood on the doorpost. <clears throat> but the lambs were all slain at the same time, and that was by the requirement of the ceremony, symbolizing that the many represent one. The blood was shed all at once. It was one slaying, even though in this world it was many knives at work. There was, as it were, one great flow of blood on that bloody evening. It was bloody. Imagine hundreds of thousands of families killing all their lambs at one time. The unity of the lambs is represented in the requirement to eat or burn the whole thing as one act of worship. In that evening, that evening summed up their whole act of the ritual of the Passover. They were to kill the lamb, spread the blood, cook the meat, eat it together, and then burn the rest. It was to be done. There weren't to be any leftovers thrown out, taken away, given to someone else, sent to the Egyptians, or used for any other purpose. And then also, the many lambs can be seen as one lamb in the aspects of the permanent celebration that's depicted later, and we won't look at the rest of the passage that shows that, but as, as God commanded the people to keep the feast of unleavened bread, Throughout their generations, once a year for the Passover, all the males were required, and the, the ladies would often go to if they were able, if their children were not demanding their care at home. All the males were required to go to the central place of worship, to go and commemorate this great and glorious work of God redeeming his people through the event of the Passover. So they would all go up to the central place of worship, the tabernacle, and later the temple in Jerusalem. Imagine what a powerful symbol of unity, oneness, that was to see all the Israelites gathering from the north and the south and the east and the west coming, streaming up to worship God in the offering of their lambs, killed together, roasted together, eaten together, completed together. What was the basis of their unity as they came up for the Passover? Their redemption by the blood of this lamb. Judah, Dan, Benjamin, all the tribes had to go up together. Shepherds, farmers, priests, judges had to go up together. Families that couldn't get along had to go up together. Neighbors that couldn't get along had to go up together. The basis of their unity was this great redemptive act of God pictured in the slaying of the lamb and the blood on the doorposts. I'll jump right to the application for that one. Our unity is in our redemption. As a church and as God's people, when we come up to worship at this tabernacle of Mount Zion, our gathering together as brethren is because we share a common experience of blood redemption. We've all been purchased with the precious blood of Christ. The same precious blood of Christ that was shed for me was shed for you. The same promise of God applied that blood to my soul and your soul. The same hope of forgiveness of sins and power to live the Christian life resides in me and you. We share Christ in common. 
Redemption in Christ is the basis of our unity. So unity. Secondly, not only does this Passover event display to us the glorious unity that is in Christ and in his people, but it also displays to us the consecration that should characterize God's people after their redemption. Verse 11, we have already read 3 through 10, but if you go to verse 11, after Moses tells the people how they are to keep the lamb and then sacrifice it, roast it, eat it, and let nothing remain, in verse 11, he says, And thus shall ye eat it, with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. This is why Passover month would be the first month in the Jewish calendar, because God's glorious redemption from Egypt would be the creation of a nation. It would be the beginning of a journey to the promised land, the establishment of the people he had said to Abraham that he would create. He had promised Abraham, I'll make you a great nation. I'll give you a land. Your seed will be a blessing to all the nations of the world. And now we see a major step in the fulfillment of that glorious promise. Now those promises would become a reality. God sets you free through the Lord Jesus Christ. Your salvation is for the purpose that God would take you somewhere. It's not simply so you would sit back and become your own autonomous individual, self-ruling. God sets you free to make you his love slave. God's Passover was the ceremony of Israel's freedom from bondage and slavery into life, light, and walking with God. And so there was a journey ahead of them. The Red Sea, Mount Sinai, the wilderness, the conquest of the land. In fact, as you get to Sinai, where the Lord comes down in that glorious manifestation of thunderclouds and fire and lightning, and then he declares his law to the people. Right before he declares the law, he tells them, he says, you've seen what I've done to the Egyptians and bore you on eagles' wings and have brought you unto myself. So why did he kill the firstborn, set Israel free, and bring them through that ritual of blood to bring them out there to meet with him, to be his people? Consecration. When God sets us free, when he redeems us, it is so that we will be his people, his people. If you've been saved from the Egypt of sin, it is not so you can be set free like a bird to do your own will, to fly where you will. If God saved you, he did it so that you could get booted out of Egypt and begin an amazing journey of walking with him. Are there seas to cross? Yes, but he has a rod to part them. Are there Sinai's to sit under? Thunder and lightning, yes, but he now writes his law in our hearts instead of simply putting it on stone. Are there wildernesses to traverse? Yes, but he promises when you pass through the water, I'll be with you, and through the fire, the flame shall not kindle upon thee. Is there a land to conquer? Yes, but it flows with milk and honey, and the battle is the Lord's and not yours. Passover was a beginning, not an end. That's the point of consecration, is that when you're saved, when you've been delivered from your sins, it is so you'll be his. It's the beginning of a journey. Unity, consecration. Number three, redemption. 
And this is probably the thing that sticks out to us the most from this glorious ritual, this glorious event, this glorious institution of the Passover. Verses 12 and 13. In Exodus 12 here, verse 12, he had told them that they were to um, eat it with their loins girded, shoes on their feet, staff in their hands, and they should eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. Verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's where we get our English word, Passover. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. God's judgment, God's deliverance. God's judgment on the wicked, God's deliverance of his people. And what makes the difference? The blood. The token of the blood, the sign of the blood, why did God give them this blood ritual? If we were setting slaves free from another nation and we were looking for a symbol of that freedom, we might look at chains being broken or we might look at some other thing having to do with slavery. But when God sets them free from Egypt, he takes the symbol of their freedom, blood. Blood on the surface doesn't appear to be quite the right symbol for setting free from slavery. But God appointed the blood token because the whole Passover event points forward to something much greater. And that's what we see all through the Old Testament. The Old Testament is God preparing the world for something bigger that's going to happen. The blood points forward to sinners' deliverance from the greater Egypt, the more evil Pharaoh, Satan. We were bound under the curse by God's just wrath against sin. And the only solution that could dissolve the curse of sin is the blood of Christ. A legal arrangement to redeem and release us by his taking our place. Him dying in the evening so that at midnight we could go free. In Exodus 12, the blood on the doorpost served as an external sign that God was saving his people from Egypt. Because of his promise, if they put lamb's blood on the doorpost, he would pass them over and the plague that came on Egypt would not come on them and destroy their firstborn. If they did not, if they did not believe his promise and if they did not do what he said, which was a sign and a symbol of his deliverance, then destruction would visit their house. Remember, at evening, under the first point when we were talking about unity, of all those lambs, they were all slain at once. At evening, there was a great flow of blood from lambs. Fathers sprinkled and spread the blood on doorposts and over the door. The blood of firstborns in Goshen, in Israel's homes, will not be shed because the blood of the lamb was shed in the place of the firstborn. The representative lambs, all who represent a great lamb, have shed their blood. Now Israel, the one family represented by their firstborns, will go free at midnight, because at evening, blood was already shed. Consider what this spread blood teaches us did not happen on Passover night. God did not distinguish Israel based on their ethnicity on that night. 
Now, God had separated the children of Israel from the Egyptians for several of the prior plagues. And we won't look at the passages, but if you read through and look at the various plagues of Egypt, you'll see that the first few, God allowed the plague to fall in both Goshen and the rest of the land of Egypt. And then he began to make a clear distinction so that Pharaoh could see, oh, wait, the Israelites aren't suffering like we are here in Egypt. The darkness is on the land of Egypt, so dark it can be felt. But in Israel, in Goshen, the land where the Israelites were staying, they had light in their dwellings. The, the lice and the, um, the, the hail and thunder and lightning, the various plagues that God brought, he made a separation between Egypt and the Israelites just based on the fact that they were his people. But here, because it's a special symbol of what God will do in the future, God did not distinguish Israel based on just their Israelites. He didn't say, I'm going to destroy the, the firstborns of Egypt, and then I'm not going to destroy the firstborns of Israel. He made the distinction based on blood, the shedding of the blood. God did not look at behavior to save these firstborns of Israel. The distinction between Egypt and Israel on this night was not, well, the righteous ones will be spared. Also, God did not just make a decree in heaven and then mysteriously accomplish it without telling his people what he was doing. Sometimes God does. In fact, probably the majority of the things God does, he just does. He doesn't tell us about them. But he does tell us about a lot of the major things he does so we can praise and magnify his name. And here, he made them go through this ritual of killing this lamb, spreading its blood, and then experiencing the blessing of the destroying angel, God himself not destroying their firstborn so that it could teach them something about his redemption. God acted. He spoke. He provided a sign, the blood of the lamb. The sign that he provided was the death of a symbolic substitute, the symbol of something that died instead of the firstborn. And then he made a promise. If you do this, your firstborn will not die. And those who believe the promise experienced the fulfillment of the promise. So we've considered how the blood did not, what it did not teach us happened on Passover night, but consider how the blood served that Passover night as a token, because that's what he says there in verse 13. The blood shall be to you for a token. And the word token simply means sign. Some have translated it a distinguishing mark. This was a God-given token. The blood was not man's best shot at pleasing God. It wasn't some idea of, well, let's think, how can we make the plagues that God's bringing on Egypt not fall on us? No, this was God's idea. God's provision. God threatened destruction. God provided deliverance. And God honored those who believed the promise of deliverance. Also, the token was external to the people. It wasn't a token in them. It was a token on the doorposts, a token outside of themselves. It represented something objective. What if one of the firstborns whispered to his daddy, I don't feel safe. I'm afraid I'm going to die tonight. The blood on the doorpost secured him regardless of his feelings. Our justification through faith in Christ's blood is external to us. Forgiveness and justification are legal realities that God declares about us, as we learn in the New Testament especially. 
There are great and glorious things that happen in us, the new birth, sanctification, but those things are not the basis of our relationship with God. Our standing before God is based on something outside of us, the blood shed and applied to us. This token not only was provided by God and was external to the people, but this token provided absolute assurance. Because God's promise could not be broken, there was no way that the token would fail in its effect. The token looked powerless, but the promise was almighty. And because the token was the sign of the promise, every Israelite could rest peacefully in the token. My brother, my sister, rest peacefully in the blood of Jesus Christ. It is your absolute assurance. What is lacking in the power of Christ to forgive sinners, to cleanse them of their sins? What is lacking in his glorious work of redemption? Nothing. It is an absolute assurance of God's salvation. For us as believers in Christ, the promise that God has given us provides absolute assurance. Romans chapter 3, verse 24 says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Absolute assurance. But the token, this token also showed no degree or gradation in its effect. You were either protected or you were not. Either the blood was on the doorpost or it was not. You were either passed over by God's destruction or you were not. A father might paint the doorpost very carefully with the blood. Another might splash a little on without much ado, but the blood was applied. The efficacy was in the promise of God behind the blood, not the hyssop brush that applied it. Some among us, I've, I've been there myself, might fear that we have not believed enough, repented enough, been converted enough. My friends, is the blood of Christ your peace with God? Do you turn from your sins and cling to the Savior? Put the blood on the doorpost. The blood of Jesus will save you. Christ gave his life a ransom, a purchase for liberty for many. 1 Peter chapter 1 says, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed, that means liberated by payment, reminds us of Exodus chapter 12, ye were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. As of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times, for you. We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Not the redemption that's in you, but the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. God set Jesus forth. Romans chapter 3, verse 25 says, God set Jesus forth to be a propitiation. That means a wrath appeasing sacrifice through faith in his blood. Faith in Christ's blood is painting it on the door the doorposts of your life. Faith in Christ's blood. The greatness, the, the sufficiency is not in your painting effort. It's in Christ. 
So Passover teaches us the unity of Christ's work and of Christ's people. It teaches us that once we have begun the Christian life, we're on a glorious journey of consecration with God. And then it teaches us about his glorious redemption. And fourthly, it teaches us about the purity that is to characterize our lives. The Passover lamb's blood was remembered with unleavened bread. We won't read all these verses because we've read them already, but verses 14 through 20 make that point very strongly. Verse 14 says, And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Seven days shall ye unleavened bread. Even the first day ye shall put away leaven out of your houses. For whosoever eateth leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. Leaven is a symbol or a representation of impurity, defilement, something that comes in and increases and grows and spreads throughout. Israel may have been puzzled by the connection between lamb deliverance and unleavened bread. If Passover is about a lamb dying so the firstborn can live, then we would expect roasted lamb at Passover. But where does the unleavened bread come in? We know that part of the picture is that the children of Israel went out in haste, so they didn't have time to prepare, you know, let the yeast bread rise and bake it and all of that. And so that's part of the picture. But the New Testament tells us that there is significance to this ritual of unleavened bread and this memorial of remembering the lamb deliverance, the blood deliverance that God gave Israel with the sign or symbol of unleavened bread. The New Testament gives us the cheat sheet on all the Old Testament pictures and symbols. If Israel has been called to be God's firstborn and the firstborn has been redeemed by blood, the blood of a symbolic lamb, and now Israel is released to go out to become the holy servant of God, then the perpetual memorial of the redemption into God's presence needs to be characterized by unmixed, unadulterated, unleavened, pure, wholehearted devotion to the God who redeemed you. It's similar to the idea of consecration, but here it focuses on removing sin and defilement. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, because Paul builds on this idea from the Feast of Unleavened Bread and applies it directly to believers. He takes a moral application, a, a spiritual or ethical application for believers from this practice of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll read verses 1 through 8. So here in 1 Corinthians, Paul is dealing with a church that has sin going on in some of their members. Some of the sins that he addresses in the letter have to do with people who are sinning actually at the assembly of the church. But here we have a sin being committed at home, something in the lifestyle of one of the members, not something they're doing in the assembly, but something in their lifestyle is defiling, distorted, not according to God's glorious order. Chapter 5, verse 1, he says, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he that hath done this deed 
might be taken away from among you. For I verily as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. The day of judgment. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven. Where does he get that phrase? It comes from the institution of Passover, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the perpetual memorial that the Israelites were to carry on every year on this particular date. They were to go through their house and remove all the yeast bread. Now I've heard that maybe some of the Jews actually went to the effort of doing a whole basically spring cleaning, sweep out everything and clean the whole thing. I don't know what, to what lengths God actually asked them, required them to do it. They were required to remove the leavened bread. But he's saying, purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump. A new lump of dough is an unleavened lump, a fresh lump, as ye are unleavened. That's your character as Christians. You're an unleavened group of people. Now live like it. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed or has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. When he says keep the feast, he is not talking about these, this church of Gentile believers, probably Gentiles and Jews. He's not saying you guys should be keeping the Passover. He might be referring to the Lord's Supper in an indirect way, but because of his teaching on the Lord's Supper here in 1 Corinthians 11, in chapter 11, he speaks to them about examining themselves, about their whole life when they come to the Lord's Supper. So it's not exclusively focused on just how you come to the Lord's Supper here. He's talking about the Christian life. Keep the feast. What feast? The Christ feast. How is it related to Passover? Passover was about blood shed, and then we go, go through our life celebrating that and looking back and saying, I'm redeemed, I'm set free. Now, when I remember it, when I keep the memorial of that glorious work, it's with unleavened bread, it's with purity. It's not with what is the leaven he wants us to stay away from, malice and wickedness. Verse 8, 1 Corinthians 5, 8. Not with malice and wickedness, but with sincerity and truth. After God has redeemed you, he calls you to a holy separation. Consider that Israel was redeemed in Exodus 12 from the destruction of the firstborn. And then only after their redemption, they then went and went out into the wilderness and then stood before the holy Mount Sinai and received that glorious commission that he gave them at Sinai, ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And that's repeated for us in 1 Peter. We're a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And so how should we be keeping the feast? How should we be celebrating this life of being redeemed by Christ? With purity, unleavened bread. Put away the malice and wickedness. 
celebrate the unity, the consecration, the redemption with purity. But also, this Passover teaches us about God's judgment. The Lamb's blood explains the contrast between Egypt's cry and Israel's peaceful silence. Let's go back to the chapter right before Exodus 12, which is Exodus 11. Back in Exodus, Exodus 11, we'll just read a couple verses from chapter 11 where Moses is telling, well, God is speaking to um, God is speaking to Moses, and then Moses is speaking to Pharaoh. In chapter 11 and verse 4, we'll read through verse 7, Moses said, Thus saith the Lord, About midnight will I go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon his throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of beasts, even the animals. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, nor shall be like it any more. But against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue against man or beast, that ye may know how that the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And then move up to chapter 12, verse 29 and 30. And it came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne unto the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. Who smote them? The Lord. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house, for there was not one dead. Imagine with me for a moment the awful pain of that Passover night in Egypt. Outside of Israel's encampment in Goshen, where the doorposts were all bloody, every Egyptian home, every temporary tent, every jail cell, every palace broke out into bitter, loud wailing. The most loved and most desired children of every house were struck down, not by disease, not by war, but by the living God. God sent his angel to slay the firstborn of Egypt. Because of Pharaoh's insolence, Egypt had stood in opposition to God and his people. And now hear the wailing of Egypt. That's a preview of hell. It's a preview of the lake of fire. We cannot imagine hell. I cannot. The Lord Jesus said, there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. But move from Egypt to Goshen, the encampment of the Israelites. And what do you hear? It is totally peaceful, serene, silent, not the silence of fear, not the silence of death, but the silence of faith in the promise, of hope, of joyful realization of promises. It said in chapter 11, no dog will move its tongue against any of the Israelites. No dog moved its tongue, no dog barked in Goshen. Doesn't Paul say about God's people, who is he that condemneth? 
It is Christ that died, the blood on the doorpost. Yea, rather, that is risen again, life after the death, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. When once the lamb is slain and his blood is on the doorpost, the old dog Satan cannot bark anymore against us. But consider, what was the price of the peaceful midnight silence in Goshen? Remember, in Goshen, at evening, there was a great bleating of animals. At evening, when the sun went down, all the lambs were slain and their blood was smeared on doorposts. In Egypt, the evening was quiet, but midnight was horrible. In Goshen, evening was noisy, but midnight was quiet. The price of the quietness of Goshen at midnight was the death of the lambs. My friends, the price of the quietness of your soul is the agony that Jesus' soul underwent for you. The Lamb of God had to bleat for you to have peace. The price of the peace you can have with God is the restlessness and pain of heart that our Christ experienced when he cried with great drops of sweat like blood, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. That is the cup of God's holy and deserved wrath against sin. The price of your midnight peace is the agony of our Savior on his cross in the day when the sun hid itself in darkness, and he cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me. Now we can answer that question. Why? For our peace. We can say it like this. Christians can rest at night because Jesus spent the night awake in the garden. Christians can die peacefully because Jesus did not. Christians have hope in their death because Jesus had despair in his. A Christian's midnight is the dawn of his exodus, the beginning of his consecrated journey, embarking on a long walk with God in holiness. The Egyptian's midnight, the sinner's midnight, is death. Destruction, hopelessness, unending fear and sorrow. If you are a spiritual Egyptian tonight, make your peace with God now. Go and apply the blood of Christ to the doorpost of your soul. Cling to his merit and his alone before God. Amen. So, my brethren, the many lambs of Israel that night represented one lamb. And that lamb is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We have amazing unity in him because we all celebrate his salvation together, no matter what other differences we may have. Once we are redeemed by the blood, we are consecrated to God's service. We go out of Egypt, not to become our own masters, not to serve a new slave driver of lust and our own passions, but to serve our Redeemer King and our loving husband, the Lord of hosts. The blood of the Lamb is the sign of our redemption. So apply it to your heart. Cling to it. Trust in it. Rest upon the blood. It's your absolute assurance. Plead nothing else before the God of the universe. Every day as you celebrate the Passover of God's deliverance in Christ, do it with purity, holiness, righteousness, 
Be scrupulous to check all the cupboards of your life for any leaven of sin, malice, wickedness. And then remember the great judgment cry in Egypt that continues on to all eternity in hell. And rejoice in the peaceful rest of God's redeemed Israel as they prepare for a glorious journey to glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your beautiful word. Thank you for the Passover. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our great lamb. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you that your blood is our life. Thank you that your disquiet is our peace. Thank you that your suffering was for our gladness. Oh, fill us with joy now. Help us to live out to the full that consecrated, holy, dedicated life of experiencing your power and your glory, rejoicing in what you have done for us, crying out for you to do it for others, and that we would reach the promised land that you have for us. For your name's sake, amen. Please stand with me, brethren, brothers and sisters. Our benediction is from Revelation, from the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Surely I come quickly. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. We are dismissed.